EMS One Academy, a training solution designed for EMS chiefs, offers more than 200 courses and 250 hours of continuing education. Our modern learning solution includes flexible reporting capabilities and features to upload agency-specific courses and track credentials for recertification. Easily streamline daily administrative workflow with EMS One Academy. Start your free trial. Visit www.emsoneacademy.com slash insideems. Well, welcome to the show. It's time to go inside EMS. I'm Chris. With me always, oh, let me give him a let me give him a better introduction. A fiery horse with a speed of light and a cloud of dust and a mighty high O silver. My partner Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? <laughs> do Do I need to be wearing a black mask and a and a uh, white Stetson? You know what? <laughs> I don't even want to go there. I don't even want to say yes because I'm afraid of the answer. But uh, yeah, I think you're the Lone Ranger, and of course you're my uh, Tonto. Ah, okay. No, you don't like. You're that? the Lone Ranger, and I'm Tonto. Yeah, you don't think so? Uh, no, I'm 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 Don Quixote, and you're my Sancho Panza. How That's about it. that? How about that? Let's go ahead and look at some windmills and see what's going on. That's right. So Be glad uh, I here's didn't a trivia question. Here's a trivia question for you. We all, all right. know that the Lone Ranger's horse was named Silver. Uh-huh. What was Tonto's horse's name? Horse. Scout, but good try. I just I just guessed. Yeah, I know. It, it, sounded like, it sounded like a good guess, man. What's going on down there in uh, Louisiana? How are things? That's good, man. I just, uh, I'm sore. I um, I got off work yesterday morning and decided to go uh, decompress and turn some ammo into smoking noise, and I didn't get to do that. I, I just uh, I went hog hunting. And wound up hunting all night and uh, didn't see anything but a coyote until this morning. So, uh, story of my life, man. Always a day late and a dollar short, huh? That's right. You know, I, I showed up at the landowner's uh, place yesterday morning and he said, yeah, you should have been here last week. There's so-and-so killed 19 hogs on my land the last week. Every night he's bringing three or four hogs out. <laughs> so, so do you, uh, do you, do you, what do you do with them? Do you eat them? Uh yeah, I'm, I would be uh, careful uh, about which ones I eat and from what area, because um, some some hogs have, carry uh, diseases like brucellosis and other things. Uh, but um, they have none of them, uh, that sort of thing has been identified in in the uh, area where I am. Uh, and generally speaking, you know, as long as the meat is cooked properly uh, to the right temperature, you don't even have to worry about that. But some people won't like the taste of wild game, particularly boar, uh, and particularly in warm weather. Um, but, uh, I've never really had a problem with it. I've killed several hogs in the, in the hot summertime. And as long as they're cleaned quickly and cleaned well, and the meat is cooked properly, uh, um, I've had no ill effects, <laughs> uh, no ill effects whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's from the hog, man. I'll tell you that. It's probably all that radiation you're getting, but, uh, you know, Kelly, as we think about this, uh, the topic of today's show, you know, we kind of chatted a little bit about it before we recorded, uh, mm-hmm. Recently in the news, there was a story about an EMS agency that uh, ran a cardiac arrest, and it was in public sight, and they called the arrest, and the patient was left in the public view. 
And, you know, that patient was in view for about three hours. And, of course, it, it caused a big challenge. We know in EMS that we have our kind of our protocols and what keeps us in the line of how we handle these situations. But now we're starting to see more and more that the paradigm is changing, that we're not transporting these cardiac arrests to the hospital. And we are leaving them and calling them on scene. So I thought it'd be really great to have a discussion to talk about in these situations, where do we stand when it comes to doing cardiac arrest in the field, calling them in the field, and and how do we handle those situations? You know, in an online poll that's conducted by EMS1.com, as it came to this subject, the question was, does your agency have protocol in place to manage deceased patients left in public view? Uh, 50% say yes, 33% say no, 17% say not sure, and it's those not sure patients or or, uh, pollsters that I would say you really need to know what those protocols are when it comes to your uh, career, uh, when it comes to your agency and how you would handle those situations. But Kelly, we're starting to see a paradigm shift now Mm -hmm. to where we used to transport every cardiac arrest. Now we're starting to call them on scene. First off, I think that I want to ask you before we get into the meat of this is how do you think that's been working? And really, what was the the crux of that, of not transporting these patients? Well, I I think it's been working very well. And I think the data on this is is pretty darn clear. And if you're if you're not doing this, you're you're lagging well behind current standards. Um, uh, Either a pulse is gotten back in the field or not at all. There are occasionally instances where where you will get ROSC in, uh, after uh, transporting to the emergency department, but the vast majority of time, um, when an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest occurs, either the paramedics get the pulse back or nobody does. Um, and and there's there's quite a bit of data to support that. Not to mention the fact that the packaging the patient, moving the patient, doing CPR in a moving ambulance is not only a, a safety hazard for the crew, uh, but it's an extremely inefficient CPR. And we know without a shadow of a doubt that uh, high-quality, uninterrupted chest compressions are the keys to a successful resuscitation. Um, uh, my employer tripled their cardiac arrest survival rates and keep in mind we run in in, uh, especially in Texas we primarily primarily run in a rural and suburban environment with fairly long response times we tripled our cardiac arrest survival rate in five years uh, um, from around eight percent to 24 25 percent and there's some days we get as good as uh, some quarters we get as good as 30 percent and we did it by doing two things differently we de-emphasized intratracheal intubation and made it a post-resuscitation stabilization maneuver in most cases. Uh, and we, we told people that, that um, uh, if you don't tube, that's fine. Uh, just don't interrupt CPR. And if you do tube, make sure you don't interrupt CPR. But the major thing we did is we quit taking dead bodies to the hospital. We work them where they lay. So uh, I think the science to support on-scene resuscitation and termination of efforts in the field is is solid. Uh, but the the problem is is um, uh, the science is great, but the the art in, is in how that's applied. And and Brian Bledsoe has an excellent saying on the subject. He said, you know, EMS uh, practice needs to be based on science, but how it's applied is art. Uh, and um, the science behind leaving this patient on the scene is pretty solid, but I, I think they failed in the art in how to do that death notification and how to uh, how to take care of that that family afterwards. Because 
that's the thing. That's our patient. Uh, once we've said stop, uh, and no one, no one took into consideration how to how to care for the patient's family. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that I always disliked about that process, you know, in all the years of experience that we have, we know that nine times out of ten they're going to be called in the hospital. Sometimes yeah. it's ten out of ten they're going to be called in the hospital. Now, one of the things that I always felt guilty about was transporting this patient to the hospital while I knew there was no hope. That nothing was going to happen. Exactly. But yet what we're doing is is we're giving the family hope that maybe everything's going to be okay. And uh, But being able to stay on scene, being able to make the call on scene, and as you mentioned, then being able to switch your um, you know, your, your focus to the family. Yeah. You know, I, I'd be curious. I know we're kind of getting off topic here, but in that case of when you are on scene and you work a cardiac arrest and it's time for you to call the code, how do you, what's your approach with the family and how do you, uh, how do you bring that up or how do you deal with them at that point? I think that's the, the, probably the greatest service that we can provide in a cardiac arrest resuscitation, honestly. And it's the one that's, that's most neglected or, or glossed over. And that's the, the art of a death notification. It's one of those things that some people are good at and, and other people suck at. Um, and, and if you are good at it, it's one of those things you really don't want to be good at, you know, and, and that's one for me. Uh, I'm good at death notifications. Uh, it's something that I would, if I had my brothers, I'd never give a single, uh, single one more. Um, but, uh, I'm fairly good at it. And what you do in those instances is you try to, you know, you try to get back in touch with the, whatever compassion that you, uh, you still feel for people in your, in your profession, uh, and, and let that show through and, um, communication with the family, uh, with the family is, is, uh, did I say family? (laughs) Um, (laughs) restart that the family communication with the, with the family communication with, (laughs) shut up. Communication with the family is, is paramount. Um, uh, I start early in the process. If there is family on scene, uh, I explain to them what is going on, and I keep them uh, keep them apprised of events every step of the way. Um, and I tell these people, uh, I allow them to be present during the resuscitation, provided they are not interfering, which is which is actually a fairly rare thing uh, these days. I, I, I have very few volatile scenes that can't be managed with a little quiet communication with the family and letting them know why we're not just loading them in the ambulance and taking them to the hospital. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I've said it kind of jokingly in this podcast before that, uh, my employer doesn't pay me for what I do with my hands. They pay me for what I do with my brain. Um, and that my job on a, on a scene like that is largely the, the stand back big picture, non-interventional paramedic stuff. It's managing the resuscitation. So once I've done the things that I need to do, uh, and got adequate personnel on the scene to, to ventilate the patient and to swap out cardiac arrest, uh, uh, chest compressors. Um, my job is mainly to, to keep time and make sure that things are done in a timely fashion that we coordinate everything. So that leaves me a lot of time to talk to family and I will tell them very, you know, uh, I'll pull out my phone and I'll play my CPR, uh, compression mix, uh, and, and explain to the family, I said, uh, we're doing everything we can for your loved one. Uh, the only chance that they have of surviving is us doing good chest compressions, uh, and, and, 
well-coordinated interventions and us putting them in the ambulance and taking them to the hospital at high speed interferes with that. So we're giving them the best shot they have at living uh, and that we are performing every intervention right there in the living room that the emergency department would provide uh, and and making sure that they understand that the patient is getting adequate care. Uh, and I'll ask them questions and stuff. And, and then when it gets to that point where we're, we're kind of at the grasping at straw stage and we're beyond that 30-minute limit that we need to be working codes, uh, I'll tell them, um, this is what we've done thus far. We've put in a, a needle into your uh, into his uh, bone marrow to ad administer life-saving medications, and we've administered those, and we've shocked him. Uh, and uh, now his heart is not responding to the shocks anymore, and we're ventilating for him and, and everything, and nothing is working. Uh, and at this point, uh, we're getting to the point where we're not resuscitating him. We're beating on his body. And I'm going to try one more round of drugs, and then I'm going to call for permission to, to stop resuscitation efforts. And uh, it's rare that I actually have a family member who disagrees with that. I think watching how hard we're working uh, and how we're working this this code um, really drives home to them the 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 degree of uh, of effort we put into it, uh, and they see that it's not going to be successful. Um, so I start, you know, before I make that phone call to the, to the physician to terminate resuscitation efforts, I start shifting over into grief counseling mode. And once we've gotten the, uh, once we've gotten the, the, the call to, uh, to stop resuscitation efforts, I'll declare the patient, uh, dead at that point. Um, and, uh, my crew knows to, to clean up and to, uh, to tidy up the body. Uh, and I, I spend the rest of my time with the family members. And I will tell them that you know uh, we're gonna um, we're gonna clean up our mess and we're gonna leave them where they are uh, and we're gonna leave them in the custody of a police officer pending the arrival of the coroner. And would you like to be with your loved one? Uh, I only ask that you don't mess with any of the interventions we put in them. We have to leave those in place per law, uh, and um, so on and so forth. You know and. Uh, and probably the, the, the most welcome thing and the hardest thing for most paramedics to do is to put your arms around somebody and say, I'm sorry for your loss. I wish we could have done more, but it wasn't possible. And yeah. doing that, you know, makes all the difference in the world. It's just the one step that, that most paramedics or, or many paramedics are uncomfortable doing. You know, I think that one of the things you said, a lot of great things I think were in your response and the one that, uh, it shows that you're a very, very compassionate provider. The one that gave me concern, though, is when you said that your agency doesn't pay you for what you do with your hands, but more or less what you do mm -hmm. with your brain. And it must yeah. be it must be horrible to live on minimum wage. But <laughs> oh well, you know, with tips I make up. For oh, okay, it. so you already tipped. <laughs> tips bring me up to minimum wage. Do a good death notification. Somebody slips you a ten. That's right. That's you know, I see. You I see. Yeah. Okay. So, but anyway, you know, put a little humor into this uh, very difficult subject. But you know, and I was the same way. You know, I would be able to go up to the family and said, you know, we've done everything we we've done everything that we could. And, I, and I'm sorry to say that they did pass away. And I would always add a caveat to say, if it is any consolation, it looks like they didn't suffer in any way. Uh, mm -hmm. Because that's always one of the things that you worry about. You know, did they go in pain Were they, uh, as they passed away, um, if it looked like that they were in any discomfort at all. So it does give them a little bit of comfort yeah. for there. But, you know, Kelly, now in, the, in this situation, though, where we talk about 
you know, someone who's in a supermarket, someone who's in a restaurant, someone who's at the street corner waiting for a bus. In a church. You know. During and, services. <laughs> you know, but that happens. I mean, we've done that. Yeah. We've run those calls. I actually ran a cardiac arrest one time at a funeral. And ah. uh, it was a very, very horrible experience for everyone that was involved. But now that we're in the situation where we may have these, you know, these patients in these high traffic areas, how do we deal with it? There are a lot of EMS agencies that have uh, policies that say it's true that we want to call uh, cardiac arrests on scene, but if this patient is in the public view, we transport him to the hospital no matter what. And I know yeah. that MedStar in Fort Worth, Texas uh, has that policy. Uh, there are other EMS agencies that share that policy. So when we think about these um, when we think about these calls and we think about the public view, I mean, what is the best way to handle it? I mean, what do, what do our EMS agencies need to yeah. do in these situations? My, my question to you is, is, is uh, you mentioned MedStar having a policy to hand, uh, for that sort of eventuality. Did they require you to continue resuscitation efforts during the transport, or was it simply a transport of the body to, to get the patient out of the public eye? Yeah, I think that's a really great question, and I don't really remember. Um, yeah. So not speaking for them, I think that uh, I would be doing an injustice to guess. Yeah. I don't know that my agency has a specific policy in that matter, but but uh, I don't know that one is, is particularly necessary. I think in this instance where something bad happened uh, and it looks leaves a, a black eye for the agency and for EMS in general, uh, Often that's when policies get written. Um, to, you, you never want a rule named after you. Uh, but um, uh, in in this case, they might they may need a written policy, something that clarifies those things, so that sort of thing doesn't happen again. Uh, in my agency, a lot of things that that you'd think would would have a policy for. Um, I think our our management, our our medical director realizes that not every you can't write a policy and a protocol for every eventuality. You have to let your providers use some clinical judgment uh, and make some decisions. Um, and in these cases, uh, our our guidelines are pretty broad. You know, do what's right for the patient, do what's right for Acadian Ambulance, do what's right for the public, uh, and and our supervisors and our leadership team will back you up on that or provide some constructive criticism if you made a decision that could have been better. Um, so it, in, in my case, I've had several of those. One was at Walmart. Uh, one was in uh, in public eye at a, at a park, and another one was was uh, in a church, uh, an apostolic church uh, during services. They they literally passed out in front of everybody, uh, and we worked a code in front of five hundred people speaking in tongues, uh, and. Uh, it was uh, it was difficult, but those situations, uh, it, when they're not addressed by policy or procedure or protocol, um, I think you you get your way past those those uh, little hiccups with with uh, planning and a little communication. Um, and in those instances, I've I've called and said, look, you know, we've got a patient that that we're going to have to transport to you, um, but uh, they're not going to take up any resources we just need a room to put them in um because we can't leave this person uh lying in the frozen food aisle at walmart um and and those 
I, I've never been rebuffed in, in any of those attempts. Uh, I, I think you have to, to call early and, and communicate exactly what you need and what your plans are uh, to uh, to the receiving facility. Um, and, and that smoothed the way. Um, it's not one of those things where you just, you know, take them to the hospital and you keep working them and say, well, you know, we would have left them there, but there were people watching. Um, that That's the kind of thing that makes emergency department staff just roll their eyes so hard they can see their occipital lobes. Um, but, uh, you know, I think one of the things that, you know, you bring up, though, I, I think is really important is that, um, you know, we need to be able to look at these situations. And if your organization doesn't have a policy on it, you know, this is one of the reasons that we talk about them is that we need to be able to, uh, you know, we need to be able to learn from these situations yeah. that happen within our career field. And certainly as we talk about this, we're not here to point fingers or to say anybody did no, anything wrong. No. What we're here to say is that this is a very, very real situation that can happen to yeah. any one this of is us. Not a, this is not a once in a million thing. You right, run right. into these. Yeah. You know, here's another thing that you brought up that uh, was one of my biggest pet peeves as a paramedic and as a leader as well, is there are a lot of times when uh, first responder agencies, EMS agencies are on scene in public, and whether it was an MVA, whether it was anything else, and they don't clean up after themselves. They leave all their oh, yeah. trash. They leave all the yeah. tape from the head blocks. They leave any, uh, uh, you know, any uh, plastic applicators from ivs or whatever it is and you know in these situations as well where we have a public uh you know a patient that's in public we've got to be able to be respectful of the community we've got to be able to clean up after mm -hmm. ourselves as well before we go all it, all it takes is one news story of an ems agency leaving medical waste on a scene uh even though that waste may have been sterile plastic wrapping you know but but uh, the public doesn't look at it that way. You left medical waste on scene. You know, it's a huge black eye. But that's another thing that those little bitty things that are the art to what we do um, that that have to balance out the science to it. And and I don't think it would be unreasonable to, to for an agency to come up with a with a uh, a contingency plan for those instances where they terminate resuscitation efforts in the field, but the patient is in public eye. Um, do you have a plan in place? Um, maybe coordinate with the hospitals or the the morgue, uh, and say under these circumstances, do we have a you know we we will need to transport the patient directly to you? Um, uh, and in some of my, our rural communities, the the on duty coroner is often the funeral home director, uh, <laughs> and uh, we we skip a space or, or we skip a step. Uh, uh, the last one of these that that uh, I terminated in the field was a, uh, was a man who had uh, committed suicide and been down for, uh, well, for a variety of reasons. The code was started much later than it should have been. The code was worked much longer than it should have been. It never should have been attempted at all. Uh, but you just couldn't leave the patient lying there in a, in a muddy field uh, around his colleagues. Uh, so we had to transport the patient. Um, and in this case, uh, it took, four or five phone calls to get the coroner's office on the phone. And he said, well, Hey, I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm the funeral director, such and such a nurse, uh, funeral home. Just bring him up here. 
so that's what we did um but that's uh that's a number that got saved uh, uh for in the future if i work a code in that particular parish and, and the same situation applies i'm going to just call this guy directly uh, because all the intermediate steps, calling the hospital, calling the doctors, uh, were, were unhelpful uh, until I got a hold of the, the coroner's office. So um, having a sort of policy in place uh, would not be, uh, would not be outside the, uh, the realm of consideration. Uh, it's something that I think EMS agencies need to, to do a little legwork on. But that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. Uh, does your agency have a policy for termination resuscitation efforts uh, and do you think there's one that's needed let us know your thoughts at the show at ems1.com don't forget to rate us on itunes and for myself and co-host chris Sibilero, thanks for tuning in to inside ems we'll catch you guys next week